Forletta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Forletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. I want to welcome everybody uh, to my podcast, Forletta Investigates. Uh, Today, we have a very special guest on my show uh, because most of the people who have been on my show have been uh, retired DEA agents. And so now I have an active DEA agent. He's a special agent in charge of New York's drug enforcement largest field division in the country. I know he's an extremely busy person. I have seen Ray Donovan on TV, and uh, the guy's just excellent. And I was hoping to get him on our show. So uh, I want to welcome you today, Ray. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Larry, thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's my pleasure. And so what I think one of the things that we've been doing is um, trying to acknowledge a lot of the work that the agency has done and DEA agents. And a lot of times, uh, sometimes the agency has been shy, I guess, to toot its own horn. And I I know a lot of things have changed since I was on a job when I first started to when I retired in about 2006. And I I admire uh, all the agents that work for DEA. Uh, We all know and understand that uh, how difficult the job is at times, not only for us, but for our families as well. So uh, without further ado, I I want to introduce uh, Mr. Ray Donovan. As I said, he's the special agent in charge of the largest uh, DEA uh, field division in New York. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Larry. Uh, Happy to be here. So, Ray, what I'd like you to do is if you would just tell everybody how how your career began with, uh, with DEA. So my career um, with DEA really started um, initially when I left New York for the United States Border Patrol um, back in 1995. I left the Bronx, uh, joined the Border Patrol, and I went to my first station was out in California, out in San Diego, the Tijuana-Chula Vista border. Um, I stayed there for a number of years and got picked up or hired by DEA. Uh, there, and then was able to come back to my hometown of New York City. And so I spent the first 15 years of my career as a DEA agent in the New York uh, Drug Enforcement Task Force. And so that is the oldest task force that DEA has. It's the most robust task force that there is. Um, The task force was actually up and running before there was a DEA. So I learned really, you know, the job from um, a lot of seized and seasoned agents, um, uh, NYPD detectives and New York State police investigators, um, who were really some of the, the lead investigators in the world at the time. Yeah. And uh, I guess you're fortunate in one sense, you got to go back home. 
in in the in, in New York. And uh, I, I can tell you, uh, I've had a lot of great personal experiences working with uh, DEA in New York and the task force guys, uh, the NYPD guys. I, I think they're the best in the country as a law enforcement agency. And, uh, you know, things have changed in New York quite significantly of what, you know, what's transpiring there politically today. So, um, but anyways, I do know that DEA has always been on the forefront of the task forces, and it is the old task, the oldest task force in the country. So, uh, Ray, please uh, expound on that a little bit. So, so really, so my first early years um, in the task force, um, I remember my first year in New York, we seized about 7,000 kilos of cocaine in the streets of New York. And so that was the, the 90s when cocaine was really king in the city. And, you know, one tractor trailer after another coming loaded with thousands of kilos into New York. Uh, since then, it really changed. And we've seen the drug trade change over time. I mean, it went from cocaine to, to heroin to fentanyl. Um, back in those days, we were it wouldn't be uncommon for us to encounter uh, Colombian organizations out in Queens, New York, um, that were getting dispatched from Colombia to oversee large-scale shipments here in uh, the New York area. Well, that's changed um, in a short period of time as well. Uh, the drug trade, we've seen it used to be really a Northeast-centric, um, meaning that one of the biggest hubs was New York City, but now it's really more global. Cocaine is is, is a global uh, uh, drug trade now more than ever. Um, you know, we don't arrest Colombians like we once did here in New York City because we see a lot of those cartels really expanded their global footprint in Europe and Australia and Asia and Russia and in Canada. Um, you know, we still very much are engaged with the Sinaloa cartel here in New York City. Even when I started um, back in the 90s, Sinaloa cartel was, had the, the biggest footprint here in New York. And to this day, they still do. Yeah, and I I see that uh, uh, you were also uh, at one time uh, at at the uh, Special Operations Division in SLD. So tell us a little bit of your time there. So after spending the first fifteen years of my career in um, in the task force, I left for my uh, headquarters rotation down in the Special Operations Division in Virginia. And immediately upon arriving there, I was assigned to the Mexico section. So uh, Mexican organizations, criminal groups, transnational organized crime groups really became my specialty based on my experience in New York. So I was placed in uh, that section that, that was responsible for coordinating thousands of investigations between the field components and the world, um, the offices throughout the world uh, through the Special Operations Division. Our main role or mission really is to help coordinate, deconflict, and really get different um, organizations, law enforcement organizations on the same page and going after some of these international crime groups. Yeah, and I think it's always important to get, um, uh, you know, full cooperation with uh, other agencies. Uh, because we're all working t towards the same goal at the end of the day. That's right. That's right. SOD was com is comprised of 34 different agencies. And so it's a unique place um, where a lot of information, criminal investigative information is shared amongst those agencies to help further those investigative cases. And really, you know, with the end game of bringing to justice these criminal groups that are, are attacking America. 
right? And SOD at one time was really, uh, I guess, under the covers. It was a, I guess, a well kept secret at the time because DEA didn't really want anybody to know about this special operations group uh, that was doing some tremendous amount of work in coordinating, you know, international wiretaps, et cetera. And uh, I think they've been very successful as a result of that. That's right. And so, I mean, it, it, as like everything, Larry, technology has changed everything. I mean, it's the, to this day, it's how we do business. Um, it's evolved. I mean, you know, um, because of end-to-end encryption and applications and um, cyber or the dark web and all these, all these different things that, that really help to advance criminal groups and, and the globalization and the interconnectivity of these groups have really changed how we attack them. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt from, you know, I started my career back in the late 70s in law enforcement and, you know, left at the end of the 2006 of the high tech stuff. And uh, I've seen some dramatic uh, changes being made. That's right. That's right. I mean, I remember setting up on pay phones in Roosevelt Avenue out in Queens, watching, waiting for a a drug dealer to show up with a pocket, pocket full of quarters and yep. then see where it goes from there. And from that, just, you know, 25 years ago till today, it just, it's night and day. It's completely changed. Technology has really changed uh, criminal activity worldwide. Back then when, when you were actually, uh, when you were in New York as a, uh, as a street agent with all the different uh, ethnic groups there, um, did the mobs, the Italian mafia, I'll say, did they have the same a control over the the heroin, or was it more in the uh, Dominican or African American communities? So when 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 I came, when I started in the task force, heroin was primarily coming out of Colombia, and so it was coming out of Colombia. But Mexican cartels were being utilized to right. really transport it into. Uh, the New York City area back to Colombian uh, distributors. So we didn't really see, you know, Italian organized crime in that particular area, but we did see them in other, you know, distributions. So we saw them, you know, they were early on in major marijuana local distribution. So we, we crossed them in those areas. Sometimes we crossed them with cocaine distribution, but they didn't really have the market cornered by the time that I arrived in the task force. It was really Colombian heroin. Back to getting into the, the cartels, especially the uh, the Mexican traffickers now who seem to be on the forefront of controlling just about all the drugs that come into the U.S., um, especially now that uh, things have changed in Colombia, but some things have not changed in, in Mexico. Right, why, do you, right. why do you see the difference? So, so the difference really is it comes down to what's, what's the demand ultimately. So we know that uh, as the Colombian organizations or the cartels down there really expanded their global footprint um, with cocaine, and you had more international criminal groups going into the Andean region in South America, um, cocaine became a global a global trade. It wasn't just the United States, and so the Mexican cartels were you know were subject to not. Now they had to buy large amounts of cocaine just to kind of fill the demand in the United States, but that demand was also um, being drawn to Europe and other places. So what did the Mexican organizations did? They started producing um, in mass quantities, methamphetamine, 
they started producing and trying to strengthen their heroin uh, to mimic uh, Colombian heroin. Um, and, and so they, they started, they, they don't grow or cultivate coca plants in Mexico, but they do have poppy plants. And so they started investing more in their, their local um, uh, drugs, and that would be heroin, marijuana, and meth, and eventually fentanyl. So you had the opportunity, I guess, to coordinate the investigation and capture of Guzman El Chapo. Can you give us a little insight into how that how that worked and how it took place? Yes, sure. So, so that the Chapo um, operation really was a, a completely collaborative effort by, and and I and I mean that wholeheartedly. It was a whole government approach. When we launched it, it was kind of looking at all the different investigative leads that we had throughout the entire USG, uh, the U.S. government, to see who had the lead, who can really kind of zero in on El Chapo. My role was was really coordinating that and coordinating the intelligence, while the field components in Mexico and throughout the United States were really driving their cases actively, um, going up on wiretaps, utilizing their information to to advance the, advance the case. Um, we started realizing early on that everybody had a piece of the puzzle, but but there wasn't any communication between the different um, different teams, different agencies that that had pieces of of Chapo's uh, organization. Once we start to started to put it all together, the picture got a lot clearer. Um, when we launched the operation on January twentieth in twenty uh, twenty fourteen, we were pretty much zeroed in on Chapo. Um, we had broken into his communication system. We knew a lot about him, his whereabouts, who was around him, his security people, his staff. Um, we knew his day to day, what he was up to. And so at that point, when we actually launched the capture operation, along with the Mexican Marines, uh, we, we were, we were pr- pretty much in the driver's seat at that point. It was just a matter of trying to get our hands on him. The one thing, Larry, I, I would say that uh, I, I don't think they get enough credit. They should really get all the credit, in my opinion, are the Mexican Marines and their willingness to put their lives on the line to go out and go after them. Um, they are the true unsung heroes in, in that capture and in those operations to go pursue him. Yeah, and and the guys that I know that worked in Mexico really speak highly of the Mexican Marines, uh, as you know, and we all know about the levels of corruption in within Mexico. But it it appears that these Marines uh, appear to be the ones that are really like the untouchables in Mexico. That's right. That's right. They they really were, but but it was also years in the making. It wasn't like okay, right. we just started working with these uh, this particular group of Marines. We've been working with them for years, going after other high-level um, cartel leaders. Um, Arturo Beltran, Leyva is one example, but there's many others. When we were going after the Zetas, the Gulf, um, those, the, those, we were working with the Marines to pursue them as well. By the time we rallied support to go after Chapo, it was already fine-tuned machine, the Marines, uh, their, that unit that we worked with. And so really it was it was about having the investigative information to pursue Chapel and identify where he was he was at and located. But it was also um, having them with us to go and in, in the willingness because it took more than anything else of uh, the political willpower to go and pursue Chapo. Well, the, the hub, so uh, as, as I understand it, that Chapo was uh, indicted in New York 
So what was the nexus between uh, New York and Mexico uh, regarding his indictment there? So Chapo had many, many, um, there were many seizures here in New York City that were attributed to El Chapo. There were several really big ones, um, multi-thousand uh, kilogram seizures that took place that um, we were able to connect back directly back to El Chapo. Um, one in particular was, uh, I think it was a 2,000 kilo seizure that came up here via, via rail uh, train. Um, that Chapo was very much in, involved with, but there were there, there was a mountain of evidence against El Chapo. There was so much evidence against him that you know it would be futile to bring it all to trial. It was just the most significant right. evidence that was used against him. But but it was uh, you, you know when you talk about New York City and the Sinaloa cartel, this has been a hub for them going back to you know the eighties. Um, with cocaine when they were transporting the, the uh, Colombian cocaine here for the cartels down there. Um, but but they've had a footprint here till that for decades now. And whether it was Chapo and his, you know, other partners in the Federation, uh, Mayo, or at, at a time, El Azul, Juan Esparagoza, um, you know, to this day, the Chop, uh, the Sinaloa cartel still has a, a, a marketplace here in New York City, but but now it's Chapo's sons, the Chapitos. Did, did some of his relatives get indicted in uh, in that case? Not his, not Chapo's relatives. No, no, not during that case. That was really just focused on on Chapo. Okay. There, there were other people that were indicted, but it was not his relatives. I see. As we look at the. Uh, the you know, the, the Mexican cartels and now the footprint that they have globally, do you think that they um, have surpassed the Colombian traffickers? Well, I, you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, the Mexican cartels, um, they're so organized, right? So there's two real kind of major organizations in Mexico. That is the Sinaloans or the Sinaloa cartel. Um, historically, the Pacific Cartel, whatever you want to call them, and and today there is also the Cartel New Generation that's based in Guala, in Guadalajara, Jalisco. Those are the two biggest organizations that control the vast majority of Mexico and and really drug trafficking at large. They have grown tremendously. I mean, there there's no doubt that they're billion dollar organizations, and you know the U.S. is not their only market. We do see. Uh, drugs that are directly tied to CJNG, Cartel New Generation, all throughout the world, um, as well as the Sinaloa Cartel. Now, you know, the Colombian groups, they're not w- exactly once what they were. They're, they're more fractured. They're smaller. But we see a lot more um, different organizations, criminal organizations coming in from, say, the Balkans or from Europe to work directly in South America uh, with Colombians. So, so it's really evolved. Drug trafficking has evolved. Um, it's no longer, hey, it's just a U.S. market. It's, it's not the case. It's a global market. There was a time that in Australia, one kilo of cocaine was worth as much as $250,000 for one kilo. Um, so, you know, they, they, these organizations saw the, the, a demand for cocaine elsewhere and they started pushing it. Right, right now, there's more cocaine going to places like the Dutch Netherlands, to Spain, um, that is really uh, dedicated for different criminal groups throughout Europe. Um, you know, last year we seized 25,000 kilos of cocaine in Philadelphia in a port, and 
every kilo was destined for Antwerp. It was not destined for the United States. So cocaine has changed. Drug trafficking has changed. And even the methodology, it, you, you, utilizing technology has advanced. Yeah. Yes. Yesterday we had um, an individual on the show who I never even heard of. His name is Louis Navia. And uh, he was a major transporter for the Mayin and Cali cartels. And uh, he really enlightened uh, a lot of that information, what you're talking about, about how they, you know, not only just the U.S. and Mexico, but especially in Europe, uh, and how tons and tons of cocaine that uh, that they had captured the market on way back when. Um, so in, in the scheme of things with, uh, with Mexico and the cartels, I mean, you can see uh, the power uh, that they have gained and, and maybe they're maybe even more powerful than, than the military itself. So what, what's your take on the, uh, the country itself in, in terms of uh, being controlled by the cartels? Well, I, I wouldn't say that the that Mexico is controlled by the cartels. I would say the, is there corruption? Yes, there's corruption. Is do, sure. do we see it? We, of, of course, we see it. But is it uh, is it rampant? It's hard to say. It's hard to put a, a finger on where and how corrupt a, an official is. Um, sure. It is a challenge for us trying to navigate that and work with uh, units that 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 we do trust and do we have longstanding relationships with, and we have to continue. To, to to collaborate with to go after these organizations are they powerful yes there's no doubt about it they uh, they are very powerful and when and, and when you take a drug like methamphetamine or fentanyl that's synthetic and could be made in a clandestine lab and it's limitless and the and it's so lucrative for them uh, that money those proceeds are going to make them even more powerful. And right. so that's kind of what we've had and what we've seen. It wasn't only meth, you know, going back to the, to the, to the eighties, uh, meth production, but now we have fentanyl production that's through the roof. And so you have billions of dollars that are flowing back to the, to the Mexican cartels, uh, which makes them even more powerful. Right. And speaking of which of, of fentanyl, uh, I know that's a real subject that you want to discuss and, you know, we're losing thousands of our children every day to overdose deaths, the fentanyl. And uh, as I understand it, now that the, you know, sort of the Mexican cartels have partnered up, partnered up with Chinese organized crime groups, and uh, that's now becoming a, a, a major problem with, uh, you know, the pills that are being put on a street laced with fentanyl. The money laundering that's that's going on by these transnational groups. That's right. So 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 it's it's a really it's it's one of those trends that we've always known that the Mexican cartels have worked with Chinese organized crime groups. Uh, we've known that uh, going back in the eighties. We've seen that um, with meth production, all the precursor chemicals that come from China that are shipped to Central America, that go up into clandestine laboratories in the Golden Triangle um, area of Chihuahua, Durango, and Sinaloa, uh, are derived from, they come in from, uh, from China. And so we've seen that going back then. We also saw Chinese organized crime helping to launder or, or clean Colombian heroin money back in the 80s. So we knew that there was some involvement. Um, 
but but it wasn't uh it really wasn't a focus i would say from an agency perspective uh because we were so focused in on the mexican cartels because of the violence and the the markets that they had throughout the united states it wasn't until fentanyl and the first time we saw fentanyl was around late 2005 in Toluca, Mexico. We saw the overdose deaths in Chicago, and we shut down a lab in Mexico. It wasn't until um, about 2011 when we started seeing um, precursor chemicals for fentanyl production coming into the United States and then getting smuggled down into Mexico, converted into fentanyl, and added into, um, into heroin to make the heroin stronger. And so that was kind of the second phase that we start, started seeing fentanyl. And it was around that time that we also noticed that you had um, Chinese organized crime groups and gangs. In many cases, there are international gangs that are working with the cartels uh, to not only bring in the precursor chemicals for meth production and fentanyl production, but now they're starting to launder millions and millions of dollars on behalf of the Mexican cartels back to Mexico. So there's a very clear connection between these criminal groups that have partnered up um, for decades now to help facilitate facilitate the drug trade. Have you seen any slowdown in the production of fentanyl or has the Chinese government taken a look at this uh, this issue? So the Chinese government did uh, institute a law that made it more challenging. So so fentanyl production in China became a crime. But, and, and, uh, but here's the issue. Um, the precursor chemicals are not illegal. So you have these organizations that are, are still shipping tons of primary chemicals, um, primarily for AP, to Mexico in ton quantities that are very easily um, turned into fentanyl. Uh, so, so that became, a, that's still a big issue. It's a precursor chemicals. It's just like pseudoephedra or monomethylamine or methylamine for meth production. They're not illegal in China. So uh, they're readily, easily shipped to Mexico and, trend, and then um, made into meth or into fentanyl. Have you seen a spike in, in, in the deaths of, uh, of these young American citizens on as a result of the fentanyl, uh, uh, I, I guess, the, the, the fentanyl issue? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. I, I could tell you from July 2019 to July uh, 2020, we've seen about 83,000, 83,500 people um, succumb to overdose. 60% of that is from um, fentanyl. Um because fentanyl was also being utilized to, to make other narcotics, other drugs stronger. Uh, besides heroin, we see fentanyl get mixed with cocaine. We've seen fentanyl mixed with marijuana. Uh, we've seen fentanyl that was being sold as pills to mimic right. uh, pharmaceutical pills such as Xanax, or Adderall, or oxycodone, uh, oxycotton. Um, so we see fentanyl is the drug of choice right now, especially in the Northeast. Um, but it's so problematic because it's so deadly. Yeah, and there's a lot of, uh, I guess, struggling families dealing with that. I've, in my uh, other career, I guess, now as a uh, private investigator, I've been dealing with some issues with families that lost their children to overdose deaths, and fentanyl is a, definitely a big part of it. It is, Larry. It is, and and I'd add one thing to that too. The the other issue with fentanyl 
and with really the drug trade growing, um, is historically, you know, if someone wanted to be a drug dealer um, and they wanted to be a high level drug dealer, they would have to take a trip down to Mexico. They would have to go to a city, which is like a hub city for the Sinaloa cartel, Culiacan, uh, and they would have to meet with a broker who is attached to the cartel and they would negotiate their transactions there. And, um, and then from that point on, that person would start re- receiving um, illicit narcotics. Well, those days are, are, are gone. You don't need to do that anymore because of the Internet. And so you have a lot of these kids that are on either social media, like Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, um, and they're selling uh, drugs right on right online, or they're in the dark web space, um, and they're receiving drugs worldwide now. When I talked about globalization and technology, you know, we we've taken down some of these illicit markets, and what we realized is it's not only uh, distributors or regional distributors that we see buying large amounts of of, of drugs there. We also see People that that are addicted to drugs buying their drugs in those in that space, and having it delivered to their doorstep, so they no longer have to meet with a drug dealer in a dark alley, and you know uh, they could have it delivered to them. And so, drug trafficking has changed with te- technology. Oh, certainly, it's. Uh, I mean, it's changed a lot uh, from the time that I was working wiretaps, T threes. We went from reel to reels to cassettes, and then to to the computer. That's right. And, and it's, uh, it's changed, uh, uh, dramatically. What, what advice would you give to families out there, um, about this drug issue that, that that's been going on for, it almost seems like forever, uh, right. in, in our country. Right. So my advice is, um, it's, it's what I do with my own kids, uh, have a serious and honest conversation. Um, one of the biggest obstacles I think is you have kids that are receiving, I'll give you an example of what's going on right now with these, these, uh, counterfeit pills that, um, are causing people, young, young folks to die. Um, they think by taking a pill that it was made in a laboratory or that there was some kind of oversight, there was a scientist or a chemist that, uh, you know, helped to, to manufacture this. And we're kind of built growing up, okay, you know, kids will take an aspirin, they'll take vitamins, that you, you're almost used to taking pills. And so they don't believe that a pill is going to be dangerous. But it's so it's so it's so false, and it's it, and it's so deadly. And and for me, I would just ha- tell the parents to make sure that you're having a conversation with your kids, especially young adults. We see a lot of social use of of these pills, which which is really fentanyl, um, where you have kids that don't normally utilize drugs, or they're afraid of hardcore drugs, um, but they, they they will readily try a pill. Because the stigma that's attached with hardcore drug use is not there with with pills. And so we have to make them aware of of the the absolute threat to their lives that exists. In fact, we know that about 26% of pills that we're seizing have enough fentanyl within them to kill someone. So it's one in four chance that they'll have an overdose. And so it really takes a conversation, um, you know, before it's too late with your kids. Make them aware of the threat, and the threat is here, and it's, it's easy for them to obtain it, whether it's from a friend, 
from family, from the internet, from a social media. You should not be taking a drug um, if it wasn't prescribed from a physician, from a pharmacy, from a pharmacist or nurse practitioner, um, and for a reason. Um, that's that's what I would really highlight. Uh, and if we can get get kids and get people thinking twice about that, then that's all all we can certainly ask for is to make them aware. Are we still um, approaching the the school systems as we used to do before in the demand reduction area regarding educating our kids? What we do, we do have outreach coordinators now in DEA. It, it, it's it's a um, uh, you know, our diversion side of the house has really grown over the years. We do have people that are, are here and their sole job is to reach out to not only to the school systems, but also to healthcare facilities. Uh, we do have operations that are, are specific to community outreach, like 360. Uh, we realize that, you know, law enforcement is only one part of our job. We have to educate. We have we do recognize the importance of treatment. Um, we do recognize the importance of collaboration with the community to to make it better and to make it safer. Ultimate Larry, uh, ultimately, Larry, I'd say that you know our role is really to save lives and as many lives as possible. And if we could do that through education and collaboration, uh, we're sure to do that. That's a great piece of advice. And um, is there anything else that Ray you'd like uh, everyone to know about uh, what DEA does and how it continues to function? as an organization? Yeah. The, the thing I'd say about DEA is that it's a, it's a long history of kind of um, staying in the shadows, but fighting a good fight every single day. Um, you know, the one thing for, for me and for every agent that ever sworn an oath and is, is really to protect America and, and to protect American lives. What I think most people don't realize is, is that the, you know, when you got 90% of the illicit drugs coming into our country uh, from Mexico and other places worldwide, you know, the, the, the foreign threat exists here. And it, it is tied to national security when you got 84,000 people dying uh, each and every year. It's not something that's going to go away. And we need to remain vigilant and steadfast, continue to work um, as an agency to pursue these criminal groups that really victimize Americans. Um, and they do it knowingly, intentionally, um, and it really comes down to, you know, the billions of dollars that they're generating because of this illicit drug trade. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. It's all about the money. That's no, right. No, no question about it. And they really don't care because even our enemies are uh, behind behind these issues uh, for sure. That's right. So, Ray, listen, I, I really appreciate I won't keep you long. I know you have a very busy schedule. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to educate all of us, especially us retired guys, about what's really taking place in uh, in DEA. Larry, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for what you do. I think it's important to get the message out there, and you're one of the leads in that in that field in that area. And so, uh, I am very grateful for that. So, thank you, Larry. Forletta investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.